Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues or dialects, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, God-fearing men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of this rushing wind... The multitude, the crowds came together, and they were bewildered. They were amazed because each one of them from these other nations was hearing them, the disciples, in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Those who were not educated at all, they wouldn't know other languages. And how is it, the crowd asked, that we hear, each of us, in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, I don't know how to say that, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, it's Greeks, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty or wonderful works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Tonight we're going to be looking at that question, the same question that the crowds asked, what does this mean? All right. But before I start, I want to lay out some important things. First, this descent of the Holy Spirit um, does not mark the first work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been active ever since the beginning of time. He is eternal God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He was active in creation. He was active in the Old Testament when those trusted in the promise that they were regenerate. That means re, uh, their hearts were uh, reborn by the Holy Spirit. They were made alive. So the Holy Spirit's normative work took place in the Old Testament. And so this isn't his first work, but what we see is not his normal work, but an extraordinary one-time event. This is, as John Stott says, the final act of the saving ministry of Jesus before his second coming. This is an unrepeatable event, all right, that we're looking at. But nonetheless, a remarkable event, right? We have to admit that. It's a remarkable event. So that's the first thing. Second, it's unrepeatable. Second, many believe that Pentecost was the birth of the church. You might hear that. When did the church begin? They would say Acts 2, right here. That's when the church started. But if you did a word study on the word church, the word church means assembly or uh, gathering of God's called ones. 
And God's called ones, God's people, weren't just uh, there or didn't just appear in the New Testament and weren't there in the Old Testament. God's called ones have been around since Adam, since Noah, since Abraham. And so this isn't really the birth of the church, but rather the second birth. Rather a reboot of the church, uh, a rebirth. And it's marked by this extraordinary descent of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see three new marks, three marks of the descent of the Spirit in the text, okay? That establishes three things, okay? The first, what does this mean? We're asking that question. What does this passage mean? First, the descent of the Holy Spirit marks a new age, a new age or a new era. You know, some of you like to wear that brand of hat, new era. It's a, it's a brand. Anyone heard of that brand before, new era? Okay, no, um, it's a California thing, I guess. All right, it'll make its way to Illinois. Most trends take about like four or five years from Southern California to make its way to Midwest. So it'll get here eventually. Um, new age. What do I mean by new age? Well, look at verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, now if you circle the word arrived or if you were to do a little word study, what it's really saying, literally, it's translated when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Now, if something is being fulfilled, we know that it was a promise at one point. So what promise is being fulfilled here at Pentecost? That's, that's the question here. And it is the fulfillment of the previous promise that Christ gave. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 4 of the book of Acts. It says, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Pentecost is the fulfillment of this promise that even goes back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, when John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is Jesus, whose sandal I am not even worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Interesting words. Well, John the Baptist is just quoting the prophets in Isaiah 32, in Zechariah 12, 10. There's this promise that God will send his spirit, an outpouring of the spirit to make things new. And it will happen in the last days. As you look at verse 17 in chapter 2 of Acts, and in the last days, Peter applies what's happening here to that prophecy in Joel saying, this is a new age. It's a new age of the church. That's what's going on here. It's, a, it's the beginning of a new age. One writer says, on Pentecost, Peter explicitly identified the era in which he lived as the last days. We, right now, we are living in the end time days, the last days, the eschatological days. That's what it's called. Big word. And so what is happening here, what this writer says, is Peter tells us that the last days is a long period of time extended, extending from the ministry of Jesus to the time that he returns. That's the age I'm talking about. It's a new age, the gospel age. And during this age that we're now living, it's the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the church of Jesus Christ receives the plentiful outpouring of the Holy Spirit to do its work throughout this age. This is why John Calvin makes a distinction between the Old Testament or the Old Age and the New Age that we now live in. He says, God did not pour out his Holy Spirit so abundantly and so largely under the law, the Old Age, as he has 
now in the new age after the manifestation of Christ. So what's happening here is a new beginning. I want you to see that. It's a a new beginning. And so everything that has happened in the Old Testament is now pointing, yes, to Christ, but to his new kingdom, his new age here. Well, what does this mean then? Practically, this new age constitutes a new work of God. God is going to establish a new work, a new era, a new covenant. And point number two, a new outpouring, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we see a new age. That's what this means. Second, there's a new outpouring. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus in the Old Testament prophets. And as we see in the text, some miracles happen. What are the three miracles? Some weird things. One is this idea of wind. We see in verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The second miracle or phenomenon is verse 3. And divided tongues of fire. So these miniature pillars of fire then hovered over the disciples, over their heads. And it rested on them. And verse 4, it, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, this outpouring. And they began to speak in other dialects or tongues. That's the third thing here. What does this all mean? I'm going to keep asking that question because that's what the people are asking. What does wind, fire, and tongues have to do with us? Wind. Let's look at that. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. What does this mean? It means that the outpouring or the filling of the Holy Spirit is a work that doesn't, that doesn't start in your own heart, but comes from outside of you. That comes down to affect change in you. That's what's happening here. And the word wind is actually another word in the Greek. It's pneuma. It's uh, another word for the spirit or breath. God breathed life into Adam. What happened? And he alive ezekiel 37 he sees this vision of this cemetery of dry bones and the lord says make these dead bones live and ezekiel's like how am i going to do that and the lord's like breathe on them like what my breath smells terribly it's just going to keep them dead you know i don't know what he they didn't probably didn't have toothpaste i don't know what they would have used back then it's an argument for why i don't use toothpaste at all i'm just kidding (laughs) breathe what is he talking about in ezekiel 36 he's talking about the breath of new life the holy spirit speak prophesy speak the gospel over and the holy spirit will then make alive what is dead a power from outside of you enacting change inside of you that's what's going on here this is a sovereign work of god man didn't say didn't call God to do this, it happened suddenly. There's nothing man did to bring this upon them. God acted in his own will. It was sudden and it was loud. I mean, what does it say? Verse two, it was a like, it was a sound, so they heard this, it was, but it was like a mighty rushing wind. It's like a tornado. Last year, I remember when the tornado came through Rockford, me and Pastor John were just right out here just watching it and the tent that we had. It was blowing and all of our cars underneath it to keep our cars from hail. Man, it was loud, right? The sound of wind just hitting your house or you're, you outside or when you're driving on the highway, you roll down your windows and the sound of wind just hits you, right? That's what's going on here. This miraculous 
tornado-like violent wind fills the room. Now, what does this mean? Well, both in the Hebrew and Greek, the word spirit means wind or breath. I already established that. But what's the theological significance? The spirit, his life-imparting power is portrayed in the imagery of filling lungs with the breath of life. I already talked about that, the, the giving life. Well, what's going on in the church here? The start. Here, the church's spiritual lungs were filled to declare the mighty works of God. An outside power enacting change on the inside. Why is this significant for you and for our society today and for you personally? Because every other religion and every other worldview, including Marxism, Black Lives Matter, any political far-right movement or far-right movement or far-left movement, any political movement, let's just say, anything other than Christianity basically believes and teaches that you are not the problem, but rather your environment is the problem. Change your environment to keep what is pure, namely you. You are pure. This is what the world teaches. There's nothing wrong with you. Your feelings, your truth, love yourself, right? That's just self-love, self-esteem culture. The whole idea is to preserve you from anything outside that could affect you. You're not the problem everyone else is. Now, what's the basic result of all of this? If you have hundreds and millions of people who now believe that they are not the problem, but everyone else around them is, what do you have? You have six billion little gods, right? I'm the Lord of my life. I'm the center of my universe. What's that gonna create? Division? Faction, war, any evil that we see, right? Human pride. That's the message. Change the outside and keep what's pure. But Christianity is completely different. See, the problem is not necessarily what's going on around you, though some of you may have circumstances that affect it, but it's really, it's you. It's your heart. Sin is is in every single one of our hearts. Our hearts are polluted and corrupted. And what needs to happen in order for that corruption to go away is something outside of us must come down. It must change us. That's the message of Christianity. Salvation is outside of you. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled by the divine power that comes from outside of you, that transforms you. This is why Jesus, when he's talking to the self-righteous Nicodemus, remember the story in John 3? This lawyer, this expert comes to Jesus. He says, uh, what must I do to enter the king, into the kingdom? He doesn't really ask that, but that's kind of the basis of his question. We know that you're from God, right? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And he continues and he says, the wind, the pneuma, the spirit blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus You can't change yourself. You can't save yourself. You need the saving work of the Holy Spirit to come from outside of you in order to see me in my kingdom. That's the first thing. That's wind. Secondly, the second thing is fire. Fire. What are these, verse 3, divided tongues of fire appeared? They saw these little pillars of bonfires above the heads of people. Like, I don't, this is miraculous. Okay? It appeared and it rested on them. Verse 4, this is what's important. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
what does this mean? This is really significant, especially if we look at the Old Testament. When God's glory, this is why it's significant. When God's glory presence, when God was present with his people in the Old Testament, whenever he came near, the way in which God would do that primarily was through fire. In Genesis 15, when God established his covenant with Abraham, that one would come from him to be a blessing to the nations, he came and ratified that covenant by being a pillar of fire. When God calls Moses for the very first time, how does he present himself to Moses? A burning bush, right? When God calls his people out of Israel, out of Egypt, to save for himself a people, he leads them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when God brings them to Mount Sinai to make a new covenant, to make, them, to make a covenant, to make them his people, the way that he manifests himself is he comes down in fire upon Mount Sinai. And the people trembled. And when the tabernacle was erected, where God dwelled with them in the midst of the camp, fire would come down from heaven and light it up, saying, I'm here with my people. But they couldn't get near to it because this fire was the glorious presence of God and it was fatal. It was glorious and it was fatal. So what's going on here now is you have the same fire now resting upon and indwelling believers. And yet they're not dying. God is present with his people. He's indwelling his new temple, which are his own people. 1 Corinthians 6 says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Tim Keller states, every believer is now a burning bush, bearing witness to the presence of God in you. That's what's happening here. That's the, that's the miracle. The miracle is how the very presence of God can indwell believers, sinners, and yet they not die. And yet this is not just pastors and apostles that are filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it say? It says that they were all filled from the mother who's nursing her child to the slave girl, to the apostle, to the deacon, to the elder. Every believer was now filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just kings and prophets in the Old Testament. Now everyone. That's amazing. Now what does this mean? There's a significant meaning here Tim Keller brings out. When Jesus, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, you know what happened? You know what happened? Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And when that happened, you know what God said? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son who I delight in. Now here's the comforting news. If you are a believer, you've received the Holy Spirit and this is what it means. Romans 8, 16. If that's what God thought about his son Jesus, what does he think of us? Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. That's what it means. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're filled with a sense of awe and wonder at the love of Christ, the love of the Father for you. And sometimes you don't feel it, but that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily a son or daughter. But there's definitely times in your life when you feel 
filled by the Holy Spirit. And that awe and that wonder is renewed. The illustration, I can't help, it's not even in my notes, but Thomas Goodwin, he tries to illustrate what this means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to to sense awe and wonder and love of who God is. It's like a father who's walking with his son or daughter, right? Just walking with them. Son or daughter, they're, they're his son and daughter. There's nothing that can change that. But in the moment, he picks up his son, hugs him and kisses him, holds him tight. You're mine. I love you. And sets his son down and keeps walking with him. You see, before he hugged him, before he kissed him, before he said, I love you, He was his son. He was his daughter. Nothing had changed. Some of you, if you're a believer, that's you. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a sense of nearness. There's a sense of awe where you understand and you know the love of Christ for you. The Spirit inside of you cries, Abba, Father. I love you. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what fire, this fire, this purifying fire also, that's another point, that the Holy Spirit now makes us more like Jesus, purifies us. The fire presence of God that once marked the center of Israel's camp now marked every believer there. That's amazing. And this outside power affecting inward change then leads to the third thing, which is tongues. Verse 4, look with me here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, other dialects. In other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so out of the flames... Uh, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, they're now not just speaking gibberish, but gibberish, but they're actually speaking literal languages of other people and nations, languages that they did not know before. And what are they speaking? What's the content? Look at verse twelve. Look at verse twelve. What's the content of their message? And they were all amazed. Or sorry, verse eleven. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're speaking of the wonderful, redemptive acts of God, the gospel. What does this mean? Why does he bring these different dialects? Why is he doing this? Well, if the wind represented power and the fire purity, then the tongues here are showing us that the Christian message is a universal message. It isn't for one ethnic group. It isn't for the white man or the black man or the uh, whoever. You go down the list, the races. You go down the, 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 the nations, the cultures. It's for everyone. It's a universal message. It's for the young, it's for the poor, poor or young, old. Poor and the rich. The homeschooler, the public schooler, and the private schooler. The theater lover, the sports lover, the scholar, whoever it is. It's a universal message to all people of all types of backgrounds. So what we're seeing here is the descent of the Holy Spirit. This is the new outpouring. So we see a new age, a new outpouring, which is creating a new city. That's the third and final point, a new city. What does this mean? Why is God doing this? The Holy Spirit is gathering for himself a new people, right? God in eternity past chose to save people for himself, the Holy uh, Jesus was sent to die on the cross for those people. And the Holy Spirit is now gathering those people of every tribe, tongue, and language, every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. That's what's happening here. A new city is being built. 
It's a spiritual city, and it's consisting not of just one ethnic nation, Israel, but of all peoples, all nations, all cultures. Now, some background here. The day of Pentecost was celebrated every year by Jews, ethnic Jews. And it was marked 50 days after the Passover, which is significant. And it was associated with the Jewish festival of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. What's happening here is we're seeing the first fruits of the harvest of the new age, of the new church. We're going to learn that 3,000 souls are saved after Peter's sermon. We'll look at that next week. And so what would happen during Pentecost is Jews, ethnic Jews, who were dispersed because of persecution, because of the exile, they were dispersed all throughout the world. And what they would do, some were, they're ethnic Jews, but they were born in these other countries. They learned those languages. They now live there. And so they're coming back for an international family reunion. That's what's happening. Right? They're coming to see one another again. And so that's why there's a big crowd. There would have been millions of people in Jerusalem at this time. And this is when this event occurs. This is when God speaks through his disciples in languages they did not know in order for the message of the gospel to go out to all the nations. And so we see this in verse 5. We continue on here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. These were God-fearing men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven is represented here. doesn't mean like literally every nation, like the Native Americans on the Americas were there, no. But every nation to the known world there was represented, okay? In fact, every single nation that's listed in verses 9 through 11 could be traced back to Noah's sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. And that's on purpose. And so verse 6, verse 6. And at the sound of this multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed. They were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And he lists there, he goes on a list, I'm not going to read it again, 15 different nations that are present. And in the list, what he's doing, this is what Luke is doing as he's writing. He lists these nations from east, all the nations in the east and the west, and then in the north and in the south. And he even includes an island of Cyrene and the desert people in Arabia to show that every nation under heaven now is hearing the gospel. This was a multilingual crowd. Any multilingual people here could speak more than one language? Do we have anyone in here? A couple of you. It's pretty awesome. And so we have in one place multiple different people. It was like when I went to New York or when I was in Germany. When I was in Germany, most of the Germans there spoke English, German, and French. And so you had multiple different people going to Berlin just to check it out. And you had different groups there in the same way. But we have way more. 15 different nations are now present. It's a multilingual crowd that is now gathered And the 120 believers who have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit are now presenting the gospel miraculously in their own language, in those people's language. And they hear it and they're amazed and they're perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What's happening here? What's so significant about this? 
The obvious point that Luke is trying to make is that the gospel message, the message of Christianity, unlike any other message, is a universal message. Christ's kingdom and the descent of the Holy Spirit brings about a new unity. We think about the disunity in our culture right now, the George Floyd riots and and everything that's going on in Minneapolis, right? So much disunity, so much chaos, so much hatred, vitriol. What could ever bring these people together? What could cross the cultural barriers, the linguistic barriers, the racial barriers, the national barriers? And here we have the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings about people from all different nation, culture, and it brings them into a new entity, a new kingdom. The gospel message transcends barriers related to gender, to class. It's for men. It's for women. School choice. I already mentioned that. It doesn't matter if you're an athlete here or a scholar. The gospel's for you. And guess what? The gospel should create a unity, a diverse unity in this church and in this group. Why? Because that's what it creates here. You know, the most diverse churches, Keller says this, The most diverse churches are the ones that are the most spirit-filled. Because the gospel transcends those barriers. It's the only hope for unity. It's the only hope for unity with your friends, with your family, in this group. The The gospel teaches us that our identity is no longer in artificial or temporal things, but in Christ. Your identity is not in your race. It's not in your gender. It's not in your feelings. It's not in your sport. It's in who God says you are. That you're made in his image. God gives you your identity. And the gospel message unifies people. It's a message of unity. But it's a message that also deals with the deepest heart problems that we have. Namely sin. This is contrasted and reminds us of Genesis Genesis 11. In Genesis 10, Moses lists out tons of nations, pretty much the same as Luke here. These are the nations that follow Noah's descendants, and God tells them to disperse into uh, into tribes among the earth, but they don't listen to God. They rebel against God. You guys know this story? And what happens is at the Tower of Babel, you have every tribe, tongue, and nation. Actually, there were no other tongues. They formed one language, one nation, uh, that, that rebelled against God and they wanted to glorify man. And what did they do? They built a tower, a tower representing human pride, representing the accomplishments of, uh, of man. This was the Tower of Babel, right? But what happened? At Babel, God judged human pride. And you know how he judged them? He divided up their languages. He confused their languages and divided them and scattered them among the whole earth. The punishment for human pride was a disunity, was wars and factions. That when you pursue man, that's what you get. But God dispersed them so that they couldn't understand one another. Well, what do we have here in Acts 2? We have the reverse of the curse of the Tower of Babel, where we have every nation under the sun now gathered, hearing the gospel in their own language, forming one group. The language barrier is dismissed. 
By God's grace in Jesus, the language barrier in Jerusalem was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations now will be gathered in Christ. It's a new age, a new outpouring. And every one of you here tonight are invited into this city. You only come by the filling of the Holy Spirit, by receiving Jesus Christ. And so I end the sermon with asking you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? Are you part of the Tower of Babel, the city of man? Or are you part of God's new city, characterized by unity and the gospel? How? How can you be born again? By trusting in Jesus Christ to be your mediator. What's a mediator? It's a go-between you and God. See, God is holy and you are not. And so you need someone to mediate between you. Otherwise, the wages of sin is death. Just like when the flaming fire came down on Mount Sinai. The people trembled. Why? Because Moses gave them the law. The law said, do this and live. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But no one can do that. And so you need a new mediator. You need a better mediator. One who could take care of your sins. One who could clothe you in his righteousness. One who could clothe you in his grace. So that when you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, you aren't dead. (laughs) You aren't put to death. It isn't fatal. But rather you're made alive. For the first time. You're filled. This is what Jesus did. This is what he accomplished. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he sent his Holy Spirit to make a new the start of a new age with a new outpouring, with a new city that changes people from the inside out. It's an amazing story, amazing truths. And I pray that you would experience the gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ.